0: Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, President and Editor in Chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This week in global development.
1: Well, hello, happy 2024, and welcome to another episode of This Week in Global Development. I'm Raj Kumar, President and Editor-in-Chief of DevX, and I'm delighted to welcome a couple of guests to our show today. Uh, Stefan, how are you? I'm
2: very well, and it's
1: Glad to be connected. It's great to be with you, Stefan Durkan, is, of course, the noted economist. Maybe I can call you a celebrity economist. certainly are in our book, former DFID chief economist, author of Gambling on Development, among many, many other accolades you have as a, as a thinker and leader in the development space. It's great to have you here. And, and I'm also joined by Anna Gowell, who is, of course, the managing editor at DevX. Hi, Anna.
3: Hi, Raj. Happy New Year.
1: Happy New Year. Yeah. Um, you know, this it still counts. We're only four days into the new year. Um, and, and it's one of the things I thought we could start with. Of course, there's a lot of news coverage over the holiday break. DevX takes an entire week off between the Christmas holiday and New Year's Day. Uh, but we published a lot of things anyway. And I'd love to get Stefan your take on, on some of that. One of the big things is really just looking at what's coming up on the calendar. You know, what to expect in 2024. Uh, maybe I can start with you on this, Stefan. What, what's kind of top of mind for you when you think about this year?
2: I was hesitating because of course it's a big question, but top on my agenda is that I just want to keep an eye on what's happening with the economic situation in, in Africa and also you know, the spread of conflicts and fragility there. So um, I think it's going to be an important year because you know, so many places are, are near some kind of tipping points, either purely in their economy or because of uh, uncertainty, fragility in the politics and, in, and issues to do with conflict. So that's definitely on top of my agenda. Yeah, yeah. And it could go all kinds of ways. That's a great one to, to focus on to start with, because you know,
1: I remember when the pandemic first hit, there was a sense that, you know, the richest countries in the world have the fiscal space. They are going to do all kinds of stimulus. And they did. And it largely, you know, by and large at work, um, it might've been bumpy in some of the advanced economies, but by and large it worked. And a lot of the economists like yourself, I was speaking to at the time said, but wait till next year, you know, African economies don't have the fiscal space, things here, there could get bad. But there were a number of measures put in place. Um, you know, there were some, some kind of holidays on debt. There were, you know, some increased investment in health systems. And somehow it feels like, we were able to push, push forward without a big crisis. You know, there were some countries that entered a period of crisis. I'm thinking of, you know, Sri Lanka and Zambia and others. But, but it does feel like this could be the year when all of those warnings actually come to fruition. There's some large number of countries now that are, by the IMF, considered to be on the, on the tipping point of default
2: yes but but it is interesting and and I'm glad you refer back to what many of us thought at the beginning of last year i, I was I was very struck that you know the Financial Times of London, a newspaper um, was admitting that was one of their projections that they got wrong last year, so they had basically projected a lot more countries going into default in Africa, and it actually in the end you know Ethiopia was the Maybe the third or the fourth one to add to the list, depending on how you measure it, just by the end of December. But it's actually been kind of okay. But but I definitely have that sense that I share with with, with, with you what you are saying is you know, there is a lot of fragility in these economies. So and um, but at the same time, it gives me hope that they were more resilient to you know quite a barrage of shocks that they got, including, of course, also food price and inflationary shocks coming out of the pandemic with limited fiscal space. So, but we'll see. I think it is the year that hopefully we'll see more progress on debt discussions, not probably have some massive new debt initiative. I I wouldn't expect that, but more country by country, sensible things, because the debt is much more complicated with a lot of domestic debt as well, and then uh, lots of different players than it used to be. But I, you know, I'm, I'm reasonably hopeful, but, but I'm going to keep on watching very carefully every few days, you know, nothing happening, no country getting into more trouble because it is, it is still very fragile. It
1: is. And the other intertwining issue, of course, is conflict. Thinking about the, is it seven countries that experienced a coup in the Sahel region last year? Um, and, you know, what the implications are for those countries. I think in places like Niger and Mali, Uh, I guess Sierra Leone had an attempted coup, but you know, that fragility, if it continues into this year, um, could be another, another point where you get an intersection of, of conflict that can spill across borders. And at the same time, the elevated interest rates, higher inflation, especially around, around food products, which is related to the ongoing war with Russia and Ukraine. And maybe you, um, maybe you end up with this being the year that every, everyone kind of predicted something bad would happen in the last three years, and this could be the year when it really does come together. And of course, all of that happening at a time, as, as uh, some of our stories in this past week have, have reported, at a time when the donor countries, the ones that are meant to stand up and, and perhaps come up with some kind of firefighting, uh, you know, initiative around debt or around conflict are going to be pretty preoccupied. You've got elections in the US, European parliamentary elections, UK elections, this is a year when more than 60% of the world's population will see national elections. Um, and so is it a time when we're ready for, for whatever the after effects could be at this, when there's other conflicts and wars happening in the world? And we had some reporting along these lines. And I wonder, you know, to the broad question, what, you, what you're kind of looking out for in 2024 and then what, what some of the, the threads are you see connecting what Stefan and I are talking about?
3: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think being in D.C., connecting the thread, we're obviously looking at the World Bank, but uh, we just had a big story out in terms of what to look forward to in the U.S. Congress. We all know it's a U.S. uh, election year in the U.S. Um, We're facing some in terms of Congress, some tight deadlines, lots of work to do, lots of dysfunction, as we're all too familiar with. Um, and I mean, the biggest thing is the government still has to be funded. We're facing a potential shutdown in, in January, February. So we're looking at the 2024 fiscal budget. And of course, that includes the international affairs budget to fund entities such as USAID. Traditionally, in years past, this has been a bipartisan affair, but we know that bipartisanship is is in pretty short supply. Um You know, there's been talk in the House among Republicans of of cutting USAID's budget by 50%. Um, This is, again, as you know, an election year. So we've got the culture war issues that has caught up uh, programs like PEPFAR, uh, which is America's kind of landmark HIV AIDS initiative. Uh, You have conservatives alleging that that money going to PEPFAR is actually going to groups that perform abortions. So it's a controversial position. We have the farm bill which is especially important in a time of of hunger worldwide. There is, of course, Ukraine aid and that supplemental package. What's not as recognized contains money for multilateral development banks, such as the World Bank. So, again, we're circling back to global debt and uh, and Congress's role in that. There's a lot on the plate. There's a lot of pessimism. But a lot of the experts that we spoke to said there's a good chance things will get done eventually, but it will be very much a kind of last minute fire drill, if you will. But there's certainly a lot hinging on Congress in terms of these debates of what's happening all around the world.
1: Yeah. And you, especially if you're not, you know, seeped in DC, you know, government affairs, as some of our reporters are here at Devex, you could be forgiven for thinking, well, is it the sort of the boy who cried wolf kind of a story because I don't remember the number, but something like, you know, most of the years out of the last eight years, there hasn't been a budget that's passed the US Congress. Instead, we've had what are known as continuing resolutions, where the prior year's budget was essentially just continued into the subsequent year. And what that's meant for foreign assistance is essentially flat amounts, sometimes even increasing a little bit. And then additional funding through some of the emergency appropriations around things like the war in Ukraine. And so we've been constantly hearing from advocates that the sky is falling, that you know, there really is diminishing support in Congress for U.S. foreign aid. Obviously, the U.S. government is by far the biggest funder of, of international assistance, including you know, most of the U.N. agencies, et cetera. So it's really consequential. And yet nothing's really happened. So you could be forgiven for thinking, well, this is another one of those stories, except for this does feel like it could be different this time you have, right, you've got a number of these, these, uh, these budget resolutions kind of coming to a head now, at a time when we're an election year a presidential election year, so be tremendous attention. You've got a new speaker in the house. um, After the last one was essentially fired for not being sufficiently conservative, or tough on spending, including on issues like foreign assistance. And the Senate is weaker than it ever was and, and if you look at the projections for this year's coming election it looks like it may be even weaker than than we thought uh, in terms of you know stalwarts behind foreign assistance in that important body. So Anna, what's your take on whether we're this is truly the year that we should be really focused on that something bad could happen, something really could break.
3: Well I think it's gonna be the year where everything is punted down the line just like previous years as you said. Um, Something that's really important to note is there was a debt limit deal that was reached last year with uh, then Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden. And if nothing is resolved, come June, there's going to be across the board funding cuts by as much as 10% for foreign affairs. So that's important to note, because it does mean we're talking about real cuts, not these rhetorical cuts where, you know, we've got threats of cutting USAID by 50%, where odds are that won't happen. But by June, there could be a reality of 10% funding cuts. But again, that's all up in the air, government shutdowns, when they do happen tend to kind of spur action and but as you said there's a lot of unknowns as well we don't know the new House Speaker Mike Johnson you know he's kind of given mixed signals for instance on Ukraine aid so what does that mean for foreign assistance um, really remains to be seen
1: Stefan you're sitting in Oxford watching all of this but you know you know full well from what the UK has gone through uh, a real roller coaster in terms of becoming one of the world's most generous foreign assistance donors, and now slashing those budgets uh, due to similar political dynamics. What's your take when you look ahead at the
2: U.S. election? Well, you know the so so the my dominant feeling is this, you know, what is it, three hundred and thirty million people holding seven point seven billion people in the world hostage? You know, it's like and and. You know, it's interesting to hear um, Anna also talking about, you know, it's it's not, doesn't, and, and you were suggesting it as well, you know, it doesn't really go into a crisis, but it is this persistent limbo at a time for quite a while now that international organizations, the UN, even World Bank, you know, all these organizations, they should evolve with the changing times. And it's just very hard to do this, everything stay somewhat the same and it and it feels it's a lot to do because the US seems to be a bit stuck in this uh, cycle in recent times. And, uh, you know, the election here is, uh, of course, brings a huge amount of uncertainty for development partners in Europe. Um, of course, also to do then with Ukraine as well, how, how they will need to respond uh, if, if there's a Trump election, you know, there is there is so much uncertainty but it it stifles um action and maybe imagination and and long-term thinking because you know we're all a bit stuck as a result
3: Interested in the intersection of business and social impact? Do you want to know how corporate sustainability, ESG, impact investing, and more can contribute to development finance? My name is Adva Saltinger. I'm a senior reporter at Devex, and I've been reporting on these issues for nearly a decade. I'm the author of Devex Invested, our free weekly newsletter dedicated to development finance. Every Tuesday, we explore how companies, investors, and market mechanisms are reshaping the world of development finance. Visit devexcom newsletters and join us on Tuesdays.
1: Yeah, that's right, including institutions like the World Bank that are at the center of this kind of new vision for where development should go. And, you know, under its relatively new president, Ajay Banga, has talked about a historic replenishment for IDA. Is trying to push forward various reforms, and you know elections are messy. Uh, politics is messy, and it can get in the way, uh, including when the largest shareholding country, the U.S., is is at stake. So I, I agree, it does create a dynamic where it's very hard to plan ahead. And 2024 could be one of these years where the development conversation is just entirely subsumed by politics of donor countries, including in the UK, right where. Keir Starmer looks, I guess, likely to be the next prime minister. And it isn't clear, though, even if Labour wins, that there will be any real policy shift in terms of overall funding. Is that fair to say, Stefan?
2: It's fair to say in overall funding, but my expectation is, and of course, it's still all taking form, is that they will be able to be you know, more positive around development and trying to reposition Britain again as being outward-oriented, also in development. So I'm actually, you know, moderately hopeful. And and I, I even have to give quite a lot of credit onto the current government, and especially those people that are now running uh, the development part of the Foreign Office of FCDO. You know, they're trying. They're trying to stabilise. They're trying to be more st- structural you know they they did publish a new white paper so like the key policy document that actually is yeah maybe going back to where we were 5 years ago but in some sense it's better than the kind of total chaos we had for a few years uh including with the cuts but also with a total realignment of how you should use aid and a and a political a dominance of political thinking in in government of um no using aid for very different purposes than than development, I think. And this is definitely being stopped. So there will be not that much change, maybe in that respect from Keir Stama. But but there is an evolution. And I would say the, the evolution is quite positive of a, of a bit more moderating force, a bit more reasonable, sensible development orientation. But yes, I don't think the budget is going to be there. And you know. Maybe just to help to understand is this is, this, this, you know, it's always for us for the right in the UK, an easy target. The fact that we were spending money abroad, it's always an easy target for the for, for, for very conservative forces that really want to be more isolationist or inward looking or purely self-interest as a country. And so if you come in as a new government in the current climate, it's probably not too wise to make this a big deal because... You're going to make yourself vulnerable for a dominance of the of the kind of newspaper coverage and so on and so I think they're going to play it cautious risk averse and not doing dramatic things on the budget but in the content, I think it could improve a lot and let's not forget think of the the billions that were being spent domestically for poorly managed migration policies and and our asylum seekers policies you know a quite a lot may well properly go back into developing countries where it should go.
1: Yeah, that's a very fair point, that it isn't just about the top line numbers, it is how you spend the money that matters so much. Uh, And and we all know that so well. And that's a great example where I think it was last year, 29%, or maybe it was 2022, 29% of the UK's uh, overseas development assistance budget went to the cost of housing refugees domestically, nearly a third. So... You know, that's a significant shift, you're right, that ultimately could mean billions that flow into into the, the kinds of projects we think about when we think of long term global development. Uh, you know, that makes me think a little bit as well about the how around USAID. We had a piece that delved a little bit into a, a second indicator that the U.S. government is using for determining what counts as localization. Um, when it comes to USAID spending overseas, and and Anna, maybe you could take us through that story a little bit. I'd love to get Stefan's take uh, on, on what this really means in terms of the way we do development.
3: Sure, yeah. So, senior our senior reporter Michael Igo he talked to Sarah Rose, who is the uh, senior advisor on localization at USAID. Um, I think most of us know about Administrator Sam Powers' pledge to direct quarter of the agency's funding to local organizations by 2025. Um, But not as much attention is paid to the other half of that pledge, which is that by the end of the decade, half of USAID's programs would give local organizations effectively real agency, real decision-making power Um, And the first iteration of this, which is called, I think you mentioned, the locally led indicator, um, it's a little bureaucratic to explain. It's basically framed around 14, quote unquote, good practices that are grouped into four categories. Of course, it can never be simple. Um, For a project to be considered locally led, it must hit two of these good practices across two categories. And I think that that's really notable because it's kind of not a lot. Um, in order to qualify as locally led. So I expect there might be some questions revolving that. But uh, Sarah Rose kind of stressed that this is still in the pilot mode. Data is not out yet. Um, But certainly there's a danger here that this just becomes a ticking the box exercise and doesn't really fundamentally address the barriers that local, local organizations face when working with USAID.
1: Yeah, USAID actually released an infographic, and we wrote up the story about it for our pro readers. And it talks about these categories, working directly with partners. That counts as a category that seems fairly self-evident. Another one's creating effective local partnerships, recognizing, leveraging and strengthening local capacity. And the last one is engaging communities directly. And the idea, as you say, is if, you know, a partner can show, and ultimately it's USAID that would decide, you know, we've, we've, we're doing something in one of these four categories, I'm sorry, in two of these four categories, but at least one thing in two of those categories, then it counts as locally led. Um, Stefan, you've been around this issue and this work for a long time. In fact, DFID was for many, many years considered the leader on locally led development. How, how, does, this, uh, how does this come to you? What, what's your feeling about this approach and kind of the broader questions around localization today?
2: So, so, look, it has to be positive that an organization like USAID is, is really trying something, okay? So it's um, and and you know you you mentioned diffit and, and 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 UK system that maybe we're, we're doing this reasonably well. but look, sitting inside, I was also never very pleased with the way. We were actually being able to do this because it's a it's a difficult thing to do. It's 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 hand you know um, as as Anna was saying, it's like you know it's it's ag- it's about agency, about controlling locally, and you know it's not in the nature of someone that comes in with substantial resources to to hand over that agency. So and maybe as DFID had a, a habit of um, actually being very supportive of things like budget support and and letting governments. Having the ownership over these things, but you know, over the years, we stepped back from it because that sense of control that the politicians wanted to have, the ministers wanted to have, senior managers also sometimes wanted to have, that actually meant that they wanted to go back to take that control. So, in that sense, the fact that AID is trying to do it, it's good. It's good. I, I, I am just uh, st- saying this also with a big smile on my face, thinking. You know, I did look at the details of how they were going to measure it and the data thing, and I can very well imagine, just as we used to have them internally in different, these endless conversations to to make targets so at least we, we have a chance of reaching them, that they are not too far-fetched so that we can show progress and the whole kind of things. And it's a t- tricky thing. Measuring this is going to be really hard. And 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 as it was alluded to already, you know, not scoring well on two of the indicators, it's not going to be that tough for quite a lot of types of programs. But, you know, it's a step and and the way it's done, I think it's quite smart, actually, that, you know, you, you'll be able to use the data. Hopefully they will publish them in the detail, not just in some aggregation to actually see more you know, what is it that they make progress in how are teams gaming it, how are, local, how are US contractors gaming it uh, to actually satisfy the, the, the rules and so on. It provides uh, a form of accountability that at last we can begin to see how well they're trying to do this in practice. But, you know, I, I'm currently spending some time thinking about, you know, maybe something to try to write something about what aid could look like in 10 years. Now, if it doesn't look far more locally led and far more owned by local populations and countries and legitimate um, people in, in, in legitimate, that legitimately can, can control spending in these countries and so on, I think we would have totally failed. So it's, it's a worthwhile step, but it's still quite a hill to climb.
1: Do you think, Stefan, that there's in some ways maybe we're setting up a conflict between this approach for localization and the payment for results approach, the kind of results revolution that has long been talked about, and I know you, you've been involved in as well, in the sense that this approach says, hey, here's a framework, let's, you know, check boxes, not necessarily in a negative way, but show, hey, look, we're, we're engaging communities, we're working with local partners. And without really talking about results, right, this is more about the, this is like a process indicator, this has nothing to do with whether the program succeeds or fails. And on the other side, you've got this very different worldview, which seems to be much more around how do you show return on investment in terms of the actual results of a program, you know, children immunized, for example, H- how do you see those two things living, coexisting in the same model of development?
2: So, so am I ad- allowed to admit that I've changed my mind over the last 10 years about this working inside the system? So yes, I was definitely very much part. And of course, you know, I, I was a chief economist. You had to show results with the, with the money. But I also saw some of the incentives it created and the incentives that it did create was very short term vision on on what development was. And these days I often talk to my students about, you know, there may well be a difference between doing good, getting results, or getting a child immunized and actually being part of a development process that actually may be a bit more longer term. You'd be willing to actually take some risks to actually say, well, I want to make sure that. We don't keep on having to do this kind of result machines that we are. So there is an element of that I'm actually quite happy with attention, and that actually I think it's a, it's an important one because the the obsession with with results that are that are shown to our taxpayers removed any form of agency, and as a result also accountability locally in terms of the, the building up these accountability processes there, but. At the same time, you're absolutely right. If we keep this as a process indicator, it's, it's not going to work. You know, How do we create incentives that local development actually also then de- delivers results for these local populations and that it's not just another form of elite capture and then an easier way of doing it with processes and so on. So there are issues, but I don't mind attention because I think we got a little bit too patronising with the results machines that we created by actually forgetting we're still within societies. These are not our societies. We are there playing a role within it. We're not neutral. We're not just outsides that come in. No, we are influencing what's happening locally. And so thinking about what our presence does locally, also as a process, as as a presence itself, as a as a mechanism of spending resources and so on. It's probably quite healthy, but we'll have to see how this evolves. And you know, I, I recognize and actually I'm, I'm happy with the tension uh, and, and without trying to say we shouldn't try to achieve results anymore, but let's make it a bit harder to, re, to achieve results with locally owned programs, organizations and see how we can do it there and, and how we then set the incentives and the processes for that. Well,
1: I love a provocative idea, and that definitely is one stuff on which we will certainly follow up on. I'm going to be doing a pro event where uh, it's kind of an ask me anything event uh, in just about a week, and we'll talk a bit about a piece I'm working on related to the the big trends I'm seeing this year in 2024 for global development. So expect a little bit more from me on this topic. Um, and are there any other any of stories that stood out to you that you want people to know about before we wrap up?
3: Well. Coming from D.C., of course, I will circle back to the U.S. elections, and I think, though, this ties to, Stefan, your earlier point of how 300 uh, million people are are holding the world hostage. I think that's a very, you know, uh, interesting way of putting it, but – It deals with the United Nations and the fact that a lot of Republicans have gone back to this tradition of bashing the U.N. when it comes when election season comes up. We're seeing this with Ron DeSantis, with Nikki Haley, who have kind of vowed to defund the U.N., um, and obviously, if the elephant in the room, if Donald Trump becomes president, the UN could be in big trouble. And this is a really big, dramatic shift after several years of, of Joe Biden, who kind of came in as the multilateralist. He, he rejoined the Paris Climate Accords, UNESCO, uh, UN Human Rights Council. And so we have this, uh, our UN correspondent, Colin Lynch, has this terrific article on what that means and even how Joe Biden's reputation has been tarnished by the uh, Israeli military offensive in Gaza. So um, I would just urge people to check it out, because while it does deal with the U.S. elections, it definitely talks about the global ramifications in terms of the U.N. So that's a standout for me, not just because I'm from D.C. and obsessed with politics. (laughs)
1: <laughs> no, I'm with you. That, that piece is fantastic. And it is worth reading for those who, you know, care about the U.N. and want to understand how does the U.S. election fit into it? Because it is pretty striking. And of course, there's going to be a big summit in you know, around the U.N. General Assembly in September in New York, the summit of the future. And this is meant to be sort of the capstone for Antonio Guterres and his second term here as secretary general. Uh, and it's really unclear whether or not that summit of the future will sort of get derailed by U.S. politics. Um, and certainly if it looks like Trump is leading, if he's the nominee by then and is doing well in the polls, it's hard to imagine that that summit of the future is going to be able to escape the gravitational pull of a, of a leading Trump candidacy in September. Um, but that's one of the key moments this year that we're all looking toward. It was meant to be all about AI in part. That seems to be the Secretary General's big area of interest and focus, but uh, it could very well just be dominated by conversations about the U.S. election. Stefan, any final thoughts from you as we as we close out?
2: Uh, no, I just actually th- that story on the UN—it is just so striking, and it's you know, look, uh, even if my metaphor of of, uh, of three hundred million people holding the rest of the world to hostage, but for the UN stuff, it it does feel like it's again. You know, the, the the UN is very dependent on the US, of course, for funding as the richest economy in the world, but it's just um, going to be so hard because at the same time, I always think as well that, the, you know, the UN needs to find a way of evolving, um, reforming and whatever, but... Uh, it's again this kind of environment. It's just going to be really hard, and um, yeah, um, I, I wish the summit in September good luck. But I bet it will be overshadowed by all kinds of other things happening in the US.
1: Well, if there's one thing we know, it's that there's going to be some unexpected things that happen this year, likely across the many, many elections happening, you know, many places in India. Uh, all over and uh, and likely other other things happening in some of the contexts you started us out talking about countries that we may not be thinking about today and then suddenly dominate the headlines when they have a, an economic crisis or a conflict. So there's going to be a lot that happens in 2024, I'm sure. And uh, it's great to have you, Stefan, to help us think it all through. So thank you for being part of this conversation today. Thank you, Anna. And uh, thanks everyone for tuning in once again to This Week in Global Development. Talk to you all next week.
0: This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.